Hello, uh, and welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Uh, <laughs> this is Jana Byers, and I am here with Martina Zweinar, the author of Soviet Senoras, Personal and Collective Transformations in Eastern European Migration, out with the University of Chicago Press uh, from 2019. Hello, Martina. How are you today? Great. Hi. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to talk to you. Um, I really enjoyed your book, and I'm really happy to hear about it um, and to get to know you. So uh, let's start there. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm I'm Martina Zweiner. I'm I'm a migrant actually, and I I was born in basically in. Uh, what once was called Yugoslavia and then Croatia, and then I moved to Italy many, many uh, years ago. I live in the uh, northeast of Italy uh, and work at a university uh, that it's called uh, Trento. I'm in a department in uh, psychology and cognitive sciences, and I'm an ethnographer, technically a sociologist, but I prefer to describe myself as an ethnographer. Um, I did a PhD in uh, sociology in Trento, and then uh, basically throughout my uh, academic career, I've spent uh, extended chunks of time, uh, especially in the in the US, again, for uh, research uh, purposes. I work uh, mainly on uh, migration, but as the book you have, uh, read and I hoped you liked. I like to address migration from an angle that is uh, different from, uh, you know, what what is usually, if I may say so, asked when it get, comes to migrants. So I'm, in a way, interested what migrants do when they do not work. So I'm basically, I guess that uh, the best description would be uh, that I to uh, research on migrants when migrants basically uh, are not our uh, hands uh, to, to, to describe them in, uh, in that way. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say that's it. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. So, uh, I mean, I think that as an immigrant, I'm an immigrant as well. I think um, as a migrant, it's uh, I can see part of how this this topic was of interest to you. Um, how how did you decide to do this work? Yeah, as you said, it's. Um, I, I think that there is something uh, about ourselves when we experience uh, things in life. We are kind of, or at least I'm curious to, in a way, to understand them. So, um, Soviet Signoras basically stemmed from my uh, experience as a migrant, but also from the fact um, that I was a particular type of migrant back in the day when I came to the area where I did my uh, research. So as I said, I'm from Eastern Europe. And I kind of always thought that I'm familiar with Eastern Europe. You know, I must add now, 20 years later, <laughs> in, a, in a very naive way, because I come from a different Eastern Europe than the one. Uh, I afterwards addressed in my research. And I guess that my, um, you know, Soviet Signoras uh, just came about when I was experiencing and observing this new inflow of migrants, different Eastern European migrants, namely coming from the territories of the former USSR, 
basically to an, to an area where I came some years before. And I was seeing in them, in a way, some kind of struggles that I have uh, gone through before them. So I was just, yeah, curious to get in touch with them. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, yeah, I mean, the migration, it, it's so, it's such a, a point where you can see uh, really people, people's lives and who, what matters to you, you know, as, as a migrant, you take what you take with you, what you're willing to let go, what, how much you want to keep from your old country. It's really telling about values. It's an interesting uh, lens to look through uh, society at. And, you know, while we're talking about the, like the production of this book, would you like to talk for a minute about your methods? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so as I said, I like to describe myself uh, as an et- as an ethnographer. Uh, when I started uh, my PhD, which was in two thousand and four, I kind of struggled with uh, what do I want to do, and what would be the research I would love to do, and the one also with which I could have a little bit of fun because I think that research is way better if we um, if we have fun doing it and if we really enjoy it and not rather not just understanding as a you know as a work that you need to do in order to accomplish your uh, your thesis and I I was very lucky to have a very good supervisor um, who basically allowed me to the possibility of thinking that a lengthy ethnography could be a way to go uh, for a PhD. Plus, you know, ethnography gave me the possibility to really be there with, uh, with people, which is something that a lot of the social sciences today kind of treats, uh, I think, uh, in a way that maybe does not allow us to be there and to observe for lengthy periods of time. Now, I'm not saying that ethnographies should last for <laughs> almost two, de- two decades like mine. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's not the way to go. But, you know, uh, I would just like to see more um, young, younger scholars or in general more, more scholars contemplating uh, ethnography for real, you know, seriously, saying I'm doing... I'm doing an ethnography and I'm investing an X, Y, Z number of years in uh, doing it. I'm conscious about the fact that I'm doing, but also, you know, academia should be conscious about the fact that these methods allows me to get so close to my, um, you know, to my subject and allows me to really be in the situation and understand, as you said, the values, the norms, the behaviors uh, that are just you know, they're more difficult to understand through many other methods, which I'm not discarding. But, you know, I think that ethnography gives you um, gives you the possibility to ask a lot of questions that naturally arise from just being in the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a time commitment. I mean, as you said, your time commitment, what is almost 20 years almost here? Almost 20 years, yes. Well, if, yeah, you, I, if you think that, uh, you know, the book came out in 20, 2019, I started the PhD in 2004, but prior to that, I al- already had about two years of uh, research experience. So yeah, I'm, I'm getting, I'm hitting the, the second decade. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's, that's a big investment in time. And uh, the academy doesn't give us a lot of space for that, right? That's not how it works. You need to produce. Yes, exactly. Production is uh, with ethnography. Production is something that uh, becomes more complicated, but not only because of time constraints, but I also find it very difficult to, you know, fit my uh, findings in an article type of, uh, you know, product. Uh, so uh, I, I'm discussing with other ethnographers, actually, it's something that also they experience. So also the format of our uh, research products has to be a little bit uh, a little bit different. And in a world where you are kind of expected to meet certain goals, which again, I'm not saying that it's wrong, but uh, yeah, ethnography, it's difficult uh, to fit in ethnography in a, in a timing uh, of a young academic. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody who needs to get, um, and if you're in the US system, like the American system where you need to get tenure and you have to produce, you've got a three-year review and a six-year review. And yeah, that makes it much more difficult. And I, I mean, it takes some time and you are also making a gamble that maybe at the end you won't have anything to say. Um, thankfully, that didn't happen here. You have a lot to say, but um, you know, you can spend a lot of time watching something and realizing and it's not really much of a phenomenon at all. Absolutely. But, I agree. Yeah, I agree. I'm so that's a, it's a gamble, uh, one that really paid off for you. So let's dive in. Um, I would like you to tell me, and if you can, is I mean this is such a huge question, but as succinctly as possible, what you feel to be your major, like your main argument here in Soviet Senoras. I guess my uh, yeah, my overarching ar argument is probably the fact that migration changes people and it, it changes them according to directions that those people, so the subjects who experienced migration were not able to foresee before they migrated. So I, I see it as a dynamic process that can make you kind of change your path dependently on what happens in this, uh, along this path. Uh, usually migrants are seen as people who come who move to a specific country or a specific area of the world because they need to but uh, they need to work they need to send money back home but it's very rare that somebody try uh, tries to describe or to analyze the changes that uh, that happen to an individual or to a group of individuals like I did in this uh, in this book you know, the changes that are brought by migration. So one thing is the fact that your economic status is uh, getting better with migration. You're sending home back, you're sending uh, home remittances, you're rebuilding your house, you're paying, you know, for your kids' uh, education, you are buying them a house, so on and so forth. These are all uh, tangible and measurable uh, changes that happen as a consequence of migration. And they were... Um, they are, you know, the, the, the so-called the the push factors that basically one migrates because needs to do X, Y, Z. You know, you, you get a to-do list as a migrant. But then 
when you migrate, you understand that some, something way more deeper has happened to you as an individual. And since individuals do not exist just in their individualistic form, but they are part of communities and groups and they constantly interact with people, those changes can be traced along groups. So I would say that my overarching argument is basically a description of how migration changes people. And I think I was able to do that because I was extremely lucky to observe uh, a group of pioneer migrants. Uh, usually when we get to migration, we uh, oftentimes, you know, because of, how, uh, because of how migration works and because of how research <laughs> works, we oftentimes get retrospective accounts of how was it when you migrated to Spain? How was it, you know, what were the difficulties that you experienced uh, during your travel? I don't know, from uh, Greece to Italy or from uh, Libya to uh, to Italy, as for the forced migrations we are seeing uh, now. But technically, I was there in the first days when they came. So I kind of could, I did not need to ask them to give, give me their account of how was it to settle in in the area uh, where they settled in. But I observed their settlement uh, process and the process that followed, uh, followed afterwards, meaning the changes that they experienced as individuals and as a group. Um, yeah. So you use a term, uh, pioneer migrants. Could you explain that? Yeah. Um, Pioneer migrants are actually the first generation of migrants. So in, uh, when I started the research uh, in uh, Italy, there were literally almost no former USSR uh, migrants. I uh, reconstructed the, uh, clearly the, the, the data. And just to, to give you an example, in, uh, at the end of the 90s, there were, speaking of regular migrants, just five Moldovan people and zero people from uh, from Ukraine. I'm not saying that they were not in Italy. I'm saying that they were not regular. So basically, when um, if you compare that data with the data that we have today, today in Italy, we have uh, one quarter of million, so 250,000 Ukrainians regular, regularly living in, uh, in Italy. The number of Moldovans is uh, slightly smaller, but, you know, together, uh, all if you combine all the former USSR um, citizens in Italy to, today, it's more than uh, it's more uh, they, they are getting close to close to a million. So uh, it, it was it was a really a big big thing when they uh, when they started coming. I mean, they were they started being really visible in the cities when they uh, where they moved to. So when I say pioneers. Um, really speaking about first-generation uh, migrants, but uh, they're pioneers because they started a flow. So um, when you say first-generation migrant, you are usually referring to a migrant that it's the first individual from his or her, uh, from one's family, basically moving to a, a different country. But in this case, they were the ones who basically built up uh, a migration flow. And one thing that it's, um, I think, important to uh, learn about this migration flow, it's probably uh, the fact that it's uh, an 80%, uh, it, it 
was born as a female migration flow and it remained as such. So uh, we, we get to, you know, peaks like uh, 8 out of 10, uh, for example, Ukrainian um, citizens in Italy are women, which basically means that, uh, that the flow started as a female one, but it also maintained itself as a, a female one, even with uh, numbers skyrocketing as the ones that I have just described to you. That's really remarkable. I mean, you have this remarkable situation in a couple ways. I mean, first of all, right, how migration works is that you somebody goes to a place, but then that becomes, you have chain migration, that place becomes a location for new people. So very few people, you know, as an American, um, very few people come over and they're the first people left. If they're from India, they have a connection with a group of people from their country or from their region, and they move to a community where, where other Indians live or other Chinese people or other Italians. So this is remarkable. And then the gender question, right? The idea that this is a female migration is also very new. So, yeah, well, I mean, it's it's new uh, with regard to uh, with regard to Europe. There are other examples of uh, female flows around the world. I mean, uh, the the book in my book, I, I tried. I don't know how well I succeeded. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see the, what the reviewers will say. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I had to. I had to establish a dialogue with other examples like this one uh, around the world. So clearly, uh, the one example to, uh, let's say, the, the, the literature stream with which I had to uh, uh, dialogue with was clearly the Mexican migration uh, to to the U.S. and a little bit of, uh, for example, the Filipino uh, migration in um either in the Middle East or uh, in uh, other parts of, uh, of Asia. So there are examples like that, but they are not, they did not remain as purely gendered as the one that I'm speaking here. Uh, plus, uh, if you just Google uh, female Ukrainian migration or female USSR migration, it's still uh, something that, among gender scholars uh, and among migration scholars, it's way, way, way understudied. Um, I tried to guess why would that be so. Um, honestly, I, I, I think that people are not, have difficulties in grasping how big the numbers are. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm sure that's the case. So um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's um, and you you do engage with this scholarship. I just think it's a it's a very you've you've caught this moment, right? You have this very interesting moment to discuss. Okay, so let's let's move into uh, the book itself. So your first chapter, a room of one's own, managing spaces, lives, and laws in residential care work. Um, can you tell me about that? Yeah, uh, can I add just a little thing yep. before that? Uh, of course. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> No, absolutely. Well, I, I, I'm very to, to tell you the tr- the truth. I'm I'm really proud of my uh, three or four pages of prologue. Oh, they're <laughs> wonderful. Yes, let's <laughs> right. Let's start that, with your prologue. I'm so sorry. That no, was, you are you are absolutely right. It's such a great. <laughs> it's such a beautiful introduction. Well, it, and it lets us know how personal this is and how yes. much you're involved in this yes, work. So please, exactly. I'm that's so- that's what I wanted to uh, to tell you. So basically, the, it, I, I opened the book with something that it's not so usual to find in uh, in books. So I wanted kind of the reader 
to get really intimate with what I was uh, about to describe and how, let's say, deeply changing the phenomena that then I tackled throughout the throughout the next uh, chapters. Uh, how really deep the, the, this idea of personal change uh, and group dynamics will become throughout the the, the book. So. I basically closed the the prologue by saying that the the people who participated in the scene that I'm describing have learned how to think in a different way. So they have learned how to be different people, which is, in a way, the substance of this whole um, of this whole book. So I'm really proud of my prologue. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit egoistic, but I'm really totally proud. But now we can jump to um, you know the the the, the chapters uh, as you before that said a room of, of one out, uh, a room of one's own. Basically, I'm. Um, I'm tackling uh, a dimension of that it's uh, a, a work dimension in the lives uh, of the women I'm uh, doing the research with, but I'm not tackling it from the point of view of the job that they're doing. Uh, first of all, most of them at the beginning, well, the vast majority of them at the beginning was a 24-7 care worker. Uh, which basically meant that they needed to share the house, uh, the apartments of the elderly they cared for. So I was not interested in the work dynamic, but I was interested in how they shared the space and how they uh, coexisted in a work environment that at the same time is really, really uh, private and intimate for the for the elderly they care for, but it's also work settlement and a living space for the women who were uh, employed. So there was uh, what I observed was a really strong tension between, uh, on the one side, the necessities that the women had, a room, a bed, you know, uh, a cupboard, uh, you know, a little bit of space where to put, you know, your clothes, your personal items, the the photograph of your kids, uh, so on and so forth. And on the other side, I observed the reluctance of the employers to have a person who is not really family, but who cares for you also from an intimate point of view. Uh, and here I refer to all the literature on body work. Uh, and uh, there has been a widely researched. So, um, what I've you know I've seen hundreds of scenes where the elderly, for example, would not allow the 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 care worker to I don't know store her clothes in uh, in the wardrobe because there were still the clothes from you know the husband that died fifteen years before, or um, she, a woman a lot of women were not allowed to uh, most of the women in fact were not allowed to have friends coming over because that was not their house. Uh, a lot of women, for example, did not have their own uh, restroom but needed to share the restroom of the elderly. And as, as we know, a lot of restrooms for elderly people need to be adapted for the necessities of the elderly people. Plus, you know, let's speak about food. Uh, women in the countries where I, um, where they come from, uh, they eat different food than, you know, than the Italian food. So uh, not only they were not able to reproduce the expectation of the elderly, like eating pasta every day. <laughs> all day, every yeah, day. All day, every day. But they were really good in, you know, 
preparing pierogi. Mm-hmm. And guess what? The elderly doesn't even know what a pierogi is. And, you know, right. stuff like that. That mm-hmm. looks a little yeah. bit comical, but when you leave it on your own skin, it leaves mm-hmm. a deep trace. And it basically just underlines that you, as, a, as an immigrant woman, as a care worker, you have been stripped of your... Uh, of your status, of your decency, and you just became um, a sidelki, which is a, a care worker in uh, in, a, in Ukrainian and in Russian, or as they used to call themselves, an ass washer, lavakuri. <laughs> it was a very den- denigrative, yeah. but a ve- I think it's really mind uh, mind blowing the fact that you. you, you yeah, they described really well what they meant with that uh, with that word. So in a way, I wanted to describe this quest for privacy that could not uh, be achieved in, in the homes of the, of your employers. And then I uh, described the struggle for uh, having these, uh, you know, pri- privacy places. Um, first of all, um, seeing the need. For privacy, uh, for privacy, and then also how they developed it, uh, you know, throughout uh, uh, throughout uh, my research. But I don't want to spoil completely the the chapter because otherwise people are not going to read me. So no, <laughs> no. So that'll that'll do. Um, yeah, that's very good. Residential care work is uh, is a traditionally uh, like gendered female, right? Mm-hmm. And it's. It's this very, um, I think that you, you do a good job of pointing out that it's it's precarious, you know, and because it's where you live, it's about yourself and your home. And there are a lot of women in these situations who are in uh, great danger. That doesn't seem to have been a big deal here or not as common here with your research. But, I, you know, it's a thing we talk about with like when women come into work as housekeepers, you know, they yeah. uh, they don't have a lot of recourse because it's if they leave their work, they leave their home. Yeah. Um, In fact, I, I've observed something like that. Uh, for instance, when the elderly person would die, so uh, it's it's important to state that you know th- those ladies that I that I observed, if they were able to keep their job and if their families were satisfied with the job, but assuming everything is you know okay, the idea is that the care worker will most likely accompany the elderly person till his or hers death. What happens when the elderly dies? <laughs> what I've seen is that you know they were given like uh, a snapshot of time, like. Five days, you're out. Now, imagine moving. Uh, first of all, you need to move somewhere else. You need to find a place. You need to find a job. you got to move your stuff. So um, notwithstanding that a lot of... Uh, a lot of the women that I uh, that I observed throughout the years, they really um, behaved very uh, lovingly towards the elderly. So when death came, it was also death for them. So they also lost uh, not only their employer but also a person whom they learned to love and care for. But but then um, you're absolutely right that to say that uh, you know nobody protects them in a moment when maybe they would need to get some support before moving on to a different uh, a different job. Mm-hmm. And at which point you know this community becomes very important as well. Yeah. All right. Um, so chapter two, practicing abundance, immigrant women and the challenge of consumption. Yeah. Yeah. So here I am, um, you know, we all, 
it's it's very difficult that um, at least when I did the, the the research, the idea that migrants are also consumers and they can be very good consumers uh, was not really something. Uh, there was not a lot of literature uh, on that. So the idea is that those women come from uh, place uh, places where they're daily life was marked with scarcity and scarcity, you know, a a whole, uh, um, a wide spectrum type of scarcity. So not only food scarcity, but even, uh, uh, you know, beauty products, clothing, uh, so on and so forth. And then they move to an area in which they um, earn a decent amount of money uh, that it's completely at their disposal when they start understanding how much money they need to send back home, they also start uh, managing money in a way that they can have something for themselves. And they start, uh, you know, uh, experiencing what consumption means in the Western world. And again, here, I try to trace it uh, almost in a time lapse. What does it mean uh, to start from an ethnic type of consumption uh, uh, And I arrived to a wide open uh, type of consumption that resembles, let's say, uh, the consumption behavior of, I would assume, you know, working class native uh, native families. And I take the readers through uh, throughout uh, different consumption venues that symbolically uh, entail um, different meanings for the women who are choosing to perform what different typologies of uh, of, uh, of consumption. So migrants come to Italy thinking that consumption is something for tomorrow, but in fact they dis- they discover that there are there there is a you know wide uh, there there are possibilities for them. To experience consumption at uh, you know at different uh, at different uh, levels, and they enjoy it a lot. I mean, I had a lot of fun uh, going shopping around with those you know wild ladies. It was really, really, really extremely fun. So yeah, but, yeah it sounds great. I'm I'm a big fan of Arena myself. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you, know, you should you should meet her in person. I mean, if there was no, if I was not bound to kind of uh, protect my sources, oh, you know, great. <laughs> she seems like a, a hoot. Um, <laughs> and the other, it's interesting. Consumption is a way uh, you can demonstrate also that you belong, right? The products you buy change, and you start you can buy the things you can buy clothing that is fashionable in the new place you live yeah yeah yeah, absolutely absolutely so you can you can start building up your status within the group uh slowly within the group through consumption that is basically the idea that i'm uh, trying to yeah to, to to give to the readers in this chapter so your next two chapters are both uh, much more intimate. They're the, the personal kind of romantic relationships or uh, family relationships, strong mothers, great lovers, sexuality and emigration, and then getting serious courtship, love, and maybe marriage and emigration. Um, and this is uh, the, I mean, a pretty important theme 
when you're talking about female migration. Uh, so would you please address this? Oh, yeah. I, well, actually, that was the core of my uh, PhD. So when I <laughs> did, you know, when I decided when I want to be in uh, as an adult, I said, you know, intimacy and sexuality are really the topics I want to go for when um, getting to migration. So the idea of those chapters is that um, when you migrate, um, and you migrate alone, um, things can happen in uh, in the area where you migrate to, and those things not always not always can be uh, are predictable. So this is particularly important for my uh, for my women because for them migration was also a, a deeply transformative uh, process from a female point of uh, view, and that has to do with their uh, age. So I, I guess uh, I was I was really really uh, amazed by the fact that in the early stages of the of my research, um, the women would kind of tell me, "Oh, but you're old. You're not married. Oh, you don't have kids. What's wrong with you?" In fact, I think that you know, for for a good chunk of time, they might have. They, they believed that there was something wrong with me. Maybe I was even homosexual. So, you know, I, I was weird, way weird. For them. But why, why was that? Because, you know, my age, so I'm 45 now, uh, and I was, when I started the research, um, I was, you know, in my late, uh, in my late 20s, they were in their mid 30s, you know, 40s. And, for them, when you're in your late 20s, uh, you should already have at least a kid and be already, you know, married. And in fact, they had one plus kids. And I would say nine, nine out of 10 were already married. So for them, the perception of age was completely different uh, than uh, what they actually experienced when they got, got to Italy. In fact, they would tell me, oh, you know, she's 40 and she's not even married yet. I I was already divorced twice <laughs> back then. So, you know, for, for them, uh, in, in your early 20s, you should have married and get a kid. In your 40s, you you are kind of ready to, became, uh, to become a grandmother. Then they get to, uh, to Italy and they discover that even when you are 40, you, there is still a, a sentimental uh, market for you. So you can be liked by somebody, but you're also allowed to like somebody else. So basically, you're not an old babushka anymore, which basically cr- produced an incredible effect on how they perceive their intimacy, sexuality, love, and ultimately also marriage. Which basically meant that they, you know, they went really wild at the beginning. <laughs> so they were uh, kind of they discovered that they can be liked by somebody else, uh, and then they started experimenting also with different types of relationships. You have to imagine that they come from an area where everybody, you know, spoke Russian. So and and the culture was really Soviet. In fact, at the beginning, they all described themselves as Soviet women. So meaning that they had a they had a a shared past. Then they get to Italy, where there are already other migrants uh, who have uh, arrived before them, and 
you know, they can experiment different types of liaisons with them. So they, they there is a whole, um, they, they were able throughout the years to build up uh, a sexual stratification system in which if you date, for example, uh, Chornienki, which means uh, a black person, um, it's not as racial as or as racialized as it may seem, as it may seem, but in fact it denotes a difference between Caucasians and not Caucasians. So for them, Chernyanki were basically whatever was northern African. I mean, technically, I've seen even uh, people from southern Italy who, for them, were Chernyanki. So you know, don't don't take it to, don't take it too seriously. But I, I, I like to use the words that they use. So they built up this stratification system in which uh, dating a male uh, that has got specific ethnic, um, cultural, uh, and also in a way racial, if you want to put it in, in this term, characteristics get, gets you to a specific type of uh, relationship. Now, if you date an Italian uh, man, the assumption is that uh, thanks to this, uh, thanks to this uh, relationship, you will most likely uh, be able to regain a status that you perceive has been uh, has been um, you lost through through migration, which is why I called the book Soviet Signoras. Um, I forgot to mention in that all of the ladies with whom I uh, did the research with, they all had professional uh, experience and were uh, highly uh, and are highly educated. So uh, the vast majority uh, has got a university degree. So they, uh, basically for them, um, migration is a, is a very, very um, harsh, um, let's say, harsh and stigmatizing uh, experience of status loss and through intimacy and sexuality they think that this, this status in fact through marriages can be uh, regained because you re-become something that you uh, once were so you, be, you re-become uh, a signora plus in Italy they discover something that they have never experienced before which was courtship so uh, in in uh, sensual terms, they all described uh, Italian males as much more passionate and courty than what have, they have experienced with their own men, whom they uh, called Sovok, which is a, ma- is a male with a, with a Soviet uh, background. Plus, uh, to add a little bit of spice without... <laughs> without saying too much, uh, also in terms of sexuality, for them, uh, the experiences that they have in Italy are oftentimes um, really, uh, really new. And that is something that I found in literature where um, the Soviet countries were um, identified with uh, with a procreative type of sexuality, whereas... uh, the Western world moved towards uh, more uh, the idea of pleasure within uh, sexuality, which had a lot of repercussions on how you actually uh, perform uh, sexuality. So a lot of sexual acts. So if we take the big umbrella of foreplay, 
for a lot of women was something that they experienced uh, for the first time uh, in Italy, and before that, they never uh, they never experienced it. So yeah, those two um, chapters I tried to speak to the idea that uh, love, sexuality, and intimacy are something that 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 can actually change uh, your migration uh, trajectory. Um, and this working kind of as a bridge to our to chapter five, uh, marriage gives you a new status as well, right? And suggests that you're you are an immigrant. You haven't that you won't be going back. You you've settled, right? You are now part of Italian society. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you are not going back, and you your life is is here uh, with a new status, as you justly said, which also meant that since you are. You are. You still remain uh, an immigrant woman, even if you have uh, settled comfortably in your uh, new shoes. And kind of uh, that was the go for which um, a lot of women felt they need uh, they need to create some uh, institutions, basically in the area where they were. So. Uh, uh, the last uh, chapter before the conclusion uh, describes how these religious institutions were built uh, and differentiated afterwards because, you know, the, in, in Ukraine there are at least a couple of different churches that uh, needed to be uh, needed to be reenacted here. Think about, you know, Belorussia or Georgia or Moldova. Uh, so they, they all... So at the turn of the millennium, and I would say, uh, I think for the first five or six uh, years, there were absolutely no religious institutions in the area where I did my research, and then they started popping up uh, slowly. Uh, and also, thank, thank, uh, thanks to the fact that some women were established, uh, were able to establish themselves, were able to settle uh, permanently um, in the area. So the chapter kind of tells the story of how hard and how uh, much it was needed to construct these uh, community institutions. Um, and um, there's a little pushback there from your new, your hosts, uh, the host country, but, but it's interesting, like then you know that you have a community, right? And this is, I mean, one of the great themes is how a community, how uh, these, these women build a community and how they change as individuals within the community. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. And then your conclusion from the detritus of the Soviet Union into a new social world. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the in the conclusion, I basically try to start. To, I reconnect to the the a more theoretical introduction, and I basically try to relate what I have discussed throughout uh, throughout the the chapters. Basically, how migration um, changes people, and I state that this is something that was not previously expected by. Uh, by migrants. And I also say that, you know, migrants expect no scars uh, to be brought back home, but in fact, every migrant brought, uh, brings back scars uh, back home. And whatever happens in a here is brought back to a there, to just reference uh, Waldinger's. But um, 
Yeah, and I, I, in that closing chapter, I uh, address the fact that it's important to study pioneers because if we really want to understand how communities and migration flows are established, we need to study, uh, study, basically pioneers. Um, I uh, then I uh, address uh, one final point, and it's the the fact that. Um, Every migrant, uh, aside from the you know usual work challenges and legal challenges migrants meet, they're also challenged uh, with the uh, with the fact that they need to fashion a new self in a novel social environment. So they need to find their own way in order to uh, establish a stable foothold in the environment where they uh, migrated uh, to. Wonderful. Um, this, God, this has been so fun. So uh, tell me, what are you, what's next for you? This, you've, you've created this, you know, work of, of great love that represents a good chunk of your life. How do you follow this up? <laughs> well, for now, I'm trying to, <laughs> not to kill my own family. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Just do, so doing the dishes is what's next, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, oh. I'm, uh, well, I'm, I'm actually in the middle of one uh, research, which I'm having a lot of fun, even if it's, uh, very different from uh, the one that uh, readers will be able to read here. Um, about two years ago, I uh, started doing uh, research with the forced migrants in a, um, in a facility in a hosting facility uh, that are basically staying in this facility for until they don't, are not able to um, solve their. Uh, their status. Um, it's a completely different work for me because I do research on about 300 men. Uh, Oof, yeah. <laughs> so wow. gender, gender is also in there, but it's, uh, it's, it's way different. And the provenience of those uh, migrants is completely different. So it's uh, namely Africa, uh, Central Africa, and then a, a little bit of um, Pakistan, uh, and a little bit of uh, of India and Bangladesh. So the idea is that how you know how do they go about establishing uh, their uh, foothold in a reality that is very hostile to them because they are black, uh, young, and male. Uh, so yeah, and I'm uh, I'm I've been doing uh, this for also using. Uh, ethnographic methods for the past two years and we'll see what will come out of that so that's um let's say that's the next step in terms of writing uh but i guess that my next move will be uh because i like so much sexuality and intimacy i think they're really important topics uh for the social sciences um, I will be moving uh, to something that broadly stays in the area of in the area of uh, sex and tech, so sexuality and technology. How you know uh, technology can mold and uh, you know um, shape our uh, desires, basically. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm gonna. I'm excited about that. I'm interested to see what happens next. Um, this is such an important topic, right? And we're we're both we both live in Europe, which is a, con- a continent where we migration is something we're talking about constantly. Um, 
And uh, it was really nice to have this academic, but a full on enjoyable read to think about it, you know, to like, let, help me think about this. So thank you very, very much. Uh, Dr. Zweiner, we'll uh, come, I'm, we'll uh, talk after your next book. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for this possibility. And yeah, hope to talk to you with the next, uh, with regards to the next book. <laughs>